I didn't even have to say, you may be seated. Good work. It's good. Um, for those of you who I have not had the chance to meet, my name is Jim, and as uh, Eric mentioned earlier, normally people confuse us for one another a lot. Normally Ford's here. Um, we're both, you know, 6566. Uh, striking uh, men. So I know it can be confusing. I am not Ford. Uh, he is in Africa. Uh, so my name is Jim, and normally I'm over here uh, playing music, and I love when Jared's playing music, and I'm up here. It's like my favorite thing. So uh, good to be here with you this morning. If you were here last week, you know we started uh, a new mini sermon series. Um, so kids, raise your hand if you remember what that mini sermon series was about. Yes, sir. Okay, so the first week was about faith. Good. And I foreshadowed a little bit about what this week would be about. Who remembers what this week was going to be about? Go for it. Hope. Hope. Good. Yes. Do you have any idea what next week's will be about? All right. Who thinks they know? Faith, hope. Adults can jump in. Call it out. Love. That's right. Kids, I have an important question for you. It's, it's the question that's likely on the minds of at least 50% of the people in here right now. And I'd be lying if I said it wasn't on my mind. What do you hope to have for lunch when you get out of church? What do you hope? Kids, somebody jump in. What do you hope you get to have for lunch after church? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Spaghettios. All right. That's a, that's a good one. Blast from my past. Yes, ma'am. Food? Reasonable. That is a very reasonable hope. You've been taught well. Yes, sir. Wow. Oh. Just collectively all. Yes. Anything mom and dad make. That's perfect. Yes. Everything. So anything, everything. Okay, it's very specific. Yes, sir. Mm, yes. The classic, anything not from our house. That is a good move. And on Sunday mornings, I too enjoy that. I look forward to that. I hope that we get to have anything not from our house. I like to eat out on a, on a Sunday. It is a lovely thing. And so today we're going to be talking about hope. And it might be weird that I ask that question. But it's because as we explain hope... Um, the English language has, uh, it's beautiful, it's rich, it's, it's complexly um, arrived at with the convergence of lots of different languages. But sometimes we use words that could have a lot of meaning. Um, and so we're going to learn that both uh, this week and next week. And so we can say, I hope I get to have SpaghettiOs today. And also, I hope in the Lord. And we use the same word uh, next week, we can say things like, I love eating out and I love the Lord. And so sometimes there is a bit of a the limitation in the language. So today we're going to be talking about that on your activity sheets. Go ahead and work on the information on hope and listen along. Um, I was thinking of a story while I was sitting back there. Um, if you know my story, then you know that I was a pretty bad kid in high school. If you don't know my story, I was a pretty bad kid in high school. And um, there, was a, there was a substitute teacher at Laser Road High School. And I feel safe telling you all this story because I was in high school 20 years ago. 
And when I was in high school, I believe this substitute teacher was 112. So unless we have a world record holder, I feel safe sharing this story with you. But when I was in high school, we had a substitute teacher. Her name was Mrs. Honeycutt. And we all really liked days when Mrs. Honeycutt was there because it was kind of a break. We were not great people, so we would mess with Mrs. Honeycutt. We found that really fun. We would call her Mrs. Honeynut or any other kind of variation on her name to see if she would catch it. So we enjoyed those one-off days when Mrs. Honeycutt was there as a sub. But if we knew that Mrs. Honeycutt was going to be there for an extended absence of a teacher, you know, maybe three, four days, and as a bad young man, so kids, don't, don't copy this, I would skip. Because I could only do one day with Mrs. Honeycutt as a substitute teacher. And I hope that is not why our attendance is a little, little lighter this week <laughs> than last week. Um, if you catch that, then you understand that was a well-constructed joke, and I hope you do catch that. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking about hope. So if you weren't here last week, we introduced the theological virtues. And the theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. And they have as their object God. We recognize that the theological virtues having their object in God must come from God, and God is doing the work in us. So there's nothing we can do to arrive at faith. That's a work of God. There's nothing we can do to arrive at a, a proper theological virtue of hope. That is also a work of God. There are really tangible things we can do to react and respond to the work of God, which we talked about last week, uh, coming to church, worshiping, praying, reading the scriptures, coming forward to the table for the Eucharist. There are things we can do to respond to God's work in the theological virtues. But God is, is the author of those things. He is the one cultivating those things in us. It's interesting hope because we, we say that word a lot and you might think, well, what is the distinction of the theological virtue of hope or the general use of the term hope? And, and on this one, I think it is not uh, wholly divorced from they're not wholly divorced from one another. There's actually an interplay with that word that makes the theological virtue of hope make a whole lot more sense. So. We might say things like, I hope my children grow up to be good young men and women who love the Lord and uh, contribute to um, a thriving society, right? That, that, that is a word, hope. And then we might say, I hope in the Lord. And I, I don't think those things are terribly different. One of them is uh, the, the thing towards which the first is pointing, right? Um, the way that St. Thomas Aquinas puts it is he says, hope is, it's future oriented. So the easiest way to understand hope for us is to take everything we learned last week about faith and simply say that hope is faith set to the future. Okay, so the easiest way again to understand hope is that it is simply faith set to the future. It is future oriented. Now, when I say things like, I hope that my children grow up to be uh, thriving adults who love the Lord and who are, are contributors to the common good of the society in which they live, those are hopes towards a real, actual, and obtainable good. 
Okay, so hope set to the future is that orientation towards the future, but it's, it's towards an obtainable good. Um, is it possible that my children can grow up to be good men and women that love the Lord and contribute to society? Is that a real possible outcome? Yes, it is a real possible outcome. It's the, how, it's the outcome for which I hope. It's the outcome I pray for them. It is a very real outcome. And we know that there's a distinction there just in the use of language that we have. And so if I were to say, I hope that next week I can accomplish some important tasks at work. I'm saying I know that this is a future orientation towards which something that it's an obtainable good. Right. It's good to accomplish things. I know I can actually accomplish them. I can actually obtain that thing. And I would use a different term if the thing was unobtainable. So I might say, I wish I was 6566. And in fact, I have said that for many, many years of my life. Why is the word wish used there as opposed to hope? Well, because I will not obtain being 6566. It's not a real thing that is obtainable. So I might say, I hope that uh, my car starts and runs well and gets me home. Well, that's a real obtainable good. So far, so good. I think that that's happened before. There's things that have happened in the past that have led me to believe it's a reasonable hope. It's be, it'd be far different than I said, I wish that I could leave church today and fly home like Superman. That's not an obtainable thing. And so when we think of the idea of hope, when we use that term regularly in our lives, we see that it is, is oriented towards the future and it's a real and obtainable, obtainable good. And so when we look at the scriptures that we've read this morning, there's, there's a lot of this idea of hope. Hope is something that is acting on us presently that is oriented towards the future. And it's interesting that both in the gospel passage and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he is saying this theological virtue of hope. And, and John is saying this, this idea of hope that Jesus is describing is really important in the midst of turmoil and pain and suffering. So both scripture passages and even the psalm recognize that right now I might be in the midst of something. But because I have faith in God, I've placed the weight of the entirety of my being into who God is and who he says I am and my relation to him. Then I have a hope that there is a real future good that is obtainable towards which I look, especially in the midst of suffering and pain. So when Paul says, I count the present sufferings of today to pale in comparison to the weight of glory that is to come. He's saying, I've placed the entirety of the weight of my being in who God is and who he says I am. And by doing that, I can look to the future, even in the midst of suffering, and say that no matter what suffering I face today, God is going to work all things together for good because I, I can reach towards this obtainable end that is this, this proper theological understanding of hope. So what exactly is that obtainable theological end? I think sometimes, and the scriptures do this, and I think it's because God is gracious to us in the scriptures, there are descriptors of um, temporal realities 
temporal suffering, so sufferings that happen in the midst of time, that uh, the future looks to, to alleviate those temporary sufferings, and we can kind of understand that. So think Revelation 21. If you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, it's a real idea of hope. Right? So there is this idea that in the midst of the human experience, you and I are going to walk through suffering. Paul notes that. Christ notes that in John 15. We're going to walk through difficulties in this world. We'll suffer. The world will hate us. We'll be persecuted. We will suffer from other things, disease and loss and sorrow and pain. We'll suffer from those things. And, and when John is receiving this vision of the future in Revelation, in chapter 21, we see that one indication of this hope, or one, one outcome of this hope, is the alleviation of the very real things we suffer. And so in Revelation 21, it says that in the end, Christ will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death. Okay, so those things that I just described are all temporal realities, meaning uh, as long as it feels like you may be suffering, at some point the suffering comes to an end, right? That suffering, as we experience it now, will end, right? And one of the visions of that future hope is that when we get to that relationship with God for which we were created, that we really ought to put our hope in, We'll feel no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. Now, I think that that's really comforting, and it helps us at least begin to understand this theological virtue of hope. Uh, What Jesus is saying is, you're going to suffer, the world will hate you, the world's hated me, but don't worry, I'm going to send you a helper, which is an important aspect I'm going to get to here in a second about our hope. I'm going to send you... The word is paraclete, that literally this, this paraclete will carry us, that will, will help us along the way. Um, but that, that suffering will end, persevere to the end, and you will obtain your reward. And it's a weight of glory. It's, it's a, a reward that we can't even comprehend how good it is. And so some of what we talk about when we talk about the theological virtue of hope is the... the Future orientation of suffering, pain, those temporal things ending. And that is really beautiful. And it is a good thing to hope for. And it is a comforting thing, especially in the midst of sorrow and suffering, right? Uh, That is why Paul says in his letter to Thessalonians that we Christians don't mourn like those who have no hope, right? So even our mourning from loss and pain is different than people who don't have that hope because we understand there will come an an end to the pain, to the death, to the sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away. However, uh, the Holy Spirit is the one actively working in and through us to develop and deepen that hope throughout the entirety of our lives. That's that idea that Christ says, I will send to you a paraclete, a helper, who will, will deepen this understanding of faith uh, and hope that that faith sets to the future. And often for us, that thing is most deepened in us when things are most awful for us. So it's a really difficult reality for us to wrestle with that that hope and our faith is more deeply ingrained in us, developed within us, within us when things are most awful for us. 
right? And so Paul notes that in the Corinthians passage, right? They are sufferings. He doesn't say the sufferings aren't real. He says, by comparison, the sufferings will seem short and momentary. These afflictions will seem insignificant only when we obtain that future hope. What I'd like us to understand, though, is that the real hope, like a really well-developed theological virtue of hope, is not simply in the ideas of that cessation, that end to temporal sufferings, but is actually in something far more positive and beautiful. Really, our, our hope is in union with God, full communion with God, with all of the things of living in a fallen world as a fallen person being stripped away from us and getting to enjoy that full union with God. So for centuries and centuries, uh, the church has called that experience, full communion with God, the beatific vision. That that's really what our hope rests in, is that someday we get the fullness of God with all of the things that keep us from that fullness of God, the weight of sin and sorrow, the weight of living in a fallen and broken world, stripped away, we get the fullness of oneness with God and communion with God. A great story to really solidify that, I think, actually comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. And if you want to read more on the theological virtues, I will say that Aquinas is writing on the virtues, um, though perhaps uh, a bit cumbersome at times, are really explanatory and, and, and will help you deepen your understanding of all of these things. Thomas Aquinas was uh, one of the most prolific writers in all of church history, an incredibly brilliant theologian who wrote thousands and thousands of pages of some of the deepest theology and philosophy that's ever been written. Um, in fact, his mind worked so quickly that uh, he would have three scribes around him at all times because he would be firing out explanations to things so quickly that one scribe couldn't keep up. So the scribe, first scribe would take the first sentence, the second scribe the second, the third the third, and they would cycle through that. And then after he was done speaking, they would compile it in proper order. Brilliant mind, brilliant man. Now, there is a fascinating story that perhaps you will think is just legend. Uh, I don't think so, because I think it's just much more beautiful if I think it happened exactly this way. Um, we do know that Thomas Aquinas was the most prolific writer of theology in, in perhaps all of church history. Yet for the last three years of his life, he wrote absolutely nothing. So he stopped writing for the last three years of his life. And there is a story that at the, what started that was Aquinas was praying at the altar one evening and uh, several other of the brothers were in the back and watching him pray. And as Aquinas was praying, the risen Lord appeared before Aquinas. And he looked at Aquinas and he said, my servant Thomas, what is it that you desire? And Aquinas responded, only you, Lord Christ. And Christ said, then me you have. 
Now, you can think, well, that sounds a bit legendary, that probably didn't happen, but I tend to think we live in a world where things like that happen pretty frequently. And it would explain why the most prolific writer in church history stopped writing for the last three years of his life. When he was asked by other people who were writers and theologians in those last three years, uh, why did you stop writing? Aquinas said, everything I've written is but an epistle of straw compared to the experience of meeting Christ. Everything I've written is but an epistle of straw. It's meaningless when compared to actually meeting the risen Christ. And I think that that is a beautiful story that really exemplifies the theological virtue of hope. What we really hope in is to be one with Christ, to truly encounter and fully uh, be one with the risen Christ. That that is the true theological virtue of hope. And if we obtain it, when we obtain it, that's the hope. Everything else we've suffered, that's that weight of glory. When we compare it, anything else we've suffered, anything we've accomplished, anything we've done, will appear as but an epistle of straw. By comparison to that deeply intimate relationship with God for which we were created. It is the very thing that sin keeps us from. Now we have a helper and we catch glimpses of it here in this world. We experience it sometimes uh, in a church service, at a sunset, on the look of a smile in our kids' faces. There are moments we experience something that's otherworldly that we kind of grasp. But when we fully obtain it, Everything else is but a mere epistle of straw. And that is the thing we have hope in. It's deep intimacy with God. The the intimacy for which we were created. So faith is the setting of ourselves, the entirety of our being, into who God is and who he says we are. Hope is faith set to the future, oriented towards the future, but looking to that very real An obtainable thing by the work and by the grace and the mercy of God, that moment where we can become fully one with God as we were intended to be. I wanted to close with uh, two poems um, that describe the beatific vision. So if you will bear with me, the first is by American author Wendell Berry and the second is by Dante um, when he describes the beatific vision. So first, Wendell Berry writes... Thrush song, stream song, holy love that flows through earthly forms and folds. The song of heaven's heaven's Sabbath fleshed in throat and ear, in stream and stone. A grace living here as we live. Move my mind now to that which holds things as they change. The warmth has come, the doors have opened. Flower and song, embroider ground and air. Lead me beside the healing field that waits. Growth, death, and a restoring form of human use will make it well. But I go on, beyond higher. In the hills fold, forget the time I come from and go to. Recall this grove left out of all account, a place enclosed in song. And Dante writes... 
O grace abounding in allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. I saw how it contains within its depths all things bound in a single book by love, of which creation is the scattered leaves. How substance, accidents, and their relation were fused in such a way that what I now describe is but a glimmer of that light. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that your spirit now would be deepening that hope, that we would all answer. If asked that question, what is it that we desire? We would simply reply, only you, Lord Christ. Father, I pray that you'd be working in and through us as we... um, Seek to be obedient to you as you draw us closer and more deeply into these theological virtues that we may know you more fully, be um, understanding more fully, to love one another more fully as an outcome of these theological virtues being deepened within us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.